where you have been so wonderfully faithful to us. We are reminded by this hymn that you make promises and you keep every one of them. We're the ones who don't keep our promises. We're the ones who said only weeks ago that we were going to do this or not do that or, or change this or repair that, and, and we have not. We are a people, O oh God, of broken promises. But you, you've never made us a promise that you didn't keep. You've promised to provide all of our needs out of your riches and glory, and you have. You have promised that all things work together for good to them that love you and are called according to your purpose. And Father, so many of us can look back on dark pages of our past to see that indeed you've kept that promise we didn't we weren't able to really enjoy it while we were under the gun but we look back oh God and we see that once again our covenant-keeping God has been faithful to his promises and we are the great benefactors of your great faithfulness to your people you have also promised, O oh God, that there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return for his people. You have promised that we will meet him. Either we will come with him or we will meet him in the air. But he will come. And we, Father, are tempted to, to forget that in a culture that seems to have gone mad in its love of immorality. Remind us, Father, that your faithfulness is great remind us that you've never promised anything that you haven't performed. Father, we are, uh, we are a well-provided-for people, too. We are uh, well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed, and we, we find it our delight that we can, once a week, come to a place in a worship service where we get to express things very tangibly. We get the opportunity to give when the culture encourages us to constantly want to get. So now, Father, here's our time, our, our occasion where we can say no to the flesh, where we can deny our, our whole tendency towards covetousness, and we can give. We can give out of that great abundance that we have stored up and it's in that storehouse because you gave us the ability to make wealth. And so, Father, it is our privilege, our, our privilege to respond to you with these gifts. Use them for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and that only. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, to Mark chapter 11 and follow as I read our text from which the teaching will be made this morning. Mark's gospel at verse 12. Follow as I read this story um, about a fig tree, beginning at verse 12. Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. 
In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now to verse 20. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. It seems to me that before we can really derive much benefit from this story, there is an issue contained in it that is somewhat befuddling. And uh, if, you're, um, if you're befuddled by it like me, then maybe we can get unbefuddled together. The issue, of course, that to which I refer is this statement that Jesus makes, um, that, he, I mean, that he curses the tree, but that the text just says, for it was not the season for figs. Now, um, why would Jesus curse a tree for not having any figs on it when it wasn't fig season yet? And uh, I hope you realize that Jesus has taken some pretty significant hits, some criticism uh, about his actions here. One, uh, dis one critic described him as petulant, um, that this was... An, was an act of a spoiled child who didn't get his way. Another critic suggested that this is a case of power wasted in the service of ill temper. So uh, those who are not particularly fond of our Savior look at this event and they say, See? You see what I mean? Uh, he's not somebody, certainly someone you want to commit your life to. I mean, he's petulant. He's a spoiled brat. Well, I, I must admit that when you, when you come upon a story like this, or come upon this story, perhaps for the first time, um, it, it certainly may appear that, um, that he's worthy or earned that criticism. What I want to try to do as we begin this morning, uh, before we dive headlong into the story, is that I'd like to clear that up. Uh, try to unbefuddle us all together. And uh, hopefully, if we can clear that little portion up, then we can, we can really benefit from the story itself. So I, I might add, it's not real difficult to explain. And the, the problem, it's not real difficult to unravel. One of the, one of the things that I discovered in my research uh, concerning this text is so many of the people who wrote... Uh, about this story made reference to a well-known fact in Palestine. And they said it again and again. Um, of the nine people that I read, seven of them referred to this well-known fact in Palestine. And, and, and the well-known fact in Palestine was this, that fruit on a fig tree appears before 
the leaves. Let me just read you one quote from one of these experts in Palestine. He said, leaves on fig trees sometimes accompany, usually follow, but never precede the figs. The fruit comes first and then the leaves. And then, then they, they launched into this fanciful attempt to try to explain why this fig tree had leaves. And, and they, um, they talked about it was, it was located in a favorable position, uh, sheltered from all the, the winds and uh, provided with the uh, necessary moisture and on and on and on they went. Well, but the point is, ladies and gentlemen, the, 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 how the tree got leaves is not the issue. I don't know how the tree got leaves. I don't know where it was located. I don't know whether the sun shone on it and nothing else. I don't know that. But I do know this much. Number one, it had leaves. Number two, fruit came before leaves. And number three, this tree didn't have any fruit. But it had the leaves. Now, gang, I hope that will allow us that little piece of um, farming history will allow us to enjoy now and to appreciate the message that is contained in this story. And I want you to know it's a doozy. It is the message. It, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, to study it is, um, is quite unsettling, rather disturbing, in fact. But now that you know all this about the agronomy of, uh, of Palestine, I think we can understand and appreciate the story. There are several lessons that I want to point to concerning the story, and here's number one. Fruit is the legitimate expectation by God for his people. Fruit is the legitimate expectation by God for his people. Gang, surely you realize that this story is not about figs. It's not about it's not, a, it, it's not about trees either. The, the, the fig tree was often used, particularly in the Old Testament, as a symbol for Israel. Let, let me read you. There's several places that you could find this. But let me read you two verses out of the book of Joel. Don't try to find it. It's pretty difficult to find. But listen to this language of Joel chapter 1. I'm going to read you two verses, 6 and 7. This is, this is descriptive. God is speaking here, and he's describing that uh, one of Israel's neighbors has come in and overrun Israel. This is what he says. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. Now, did you get that? Uh, it was simply God outlining that a, that a nation, this, in this case Assyria, Assyria has come in, swept through Israel, destroyed Israel, and when God got ready to describe the nation of Israel, he says, this nasty old nation from the north has come in and devoured my land. It has consumed my fig tree. The fig tree, you want to, uh, Hosea chapter 9, um, Hosea, uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, 
Numerous times, the Bible describes or uses a fig tree to symbolize Israel. So, ladies and gentlemen, this story is not about figs. It's not about trees. It's about people. Particularly in this story as Jesus spoke it, that the fig tree was a symbol. The whole story is symbolic, ladies and gentlemen. It's a symbol of Israel. And here's the problem. Israel had an appearance of being something when in fact she was not that something. Israel wanted to appear to be something, but in reality, she wasn't. She was nothing, she was guilty of leafy barrenness. On the outside, she was a, she was a pleasant sight. She gave the impression that she was quite religious, that, um, that all of her spiritual ducks were in a row, but it was all leaves. Israel, um, she had down pat all of that religious form stuff, but there was no reality underneath the form. She had leaves, but she didn't have any fruit. Israel gave off signals overtly that she was one thing when in fact she was another thing. And because of that, Jesus condemns this fig tree, uproots it. This, this, this uh, state in which Israel was, that she appeared to be something when she was not, evokes from Jesus Christ condemnation. And, and one thing that I'd like for you to notice that I, that I think is, that is so necessary that we notice, ladies and gentlemen, concerning this story, I, I want you to see that Jesus was upset not with what Israel had done, but with what Israel had not done. That's very important, guys, because we have a tendency to, to identify um, wickedness with overt acts. Well, if you uh, rape somebody, you're a rapist. Or if you, if you rob the bank, you're a thief, and that's wickedness. And, and indeed, folks, those are cases of wickedness. But in this case, in this story, wickedness is not portrayed in terms of overt acts. Jesus is upset not because of things Israel did. He was upset about that, too. But in this case, he is upset about things Israel didn't do. And, and I'm afraid that many today... They, they, they comfort themselves by saying, well... I didn't do that, and I don't do this. You know, it's the, I don't drink, and I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't go out with the girls that do. And, and because they don't, they conclude, well, 
there is health in my soul. Gang, what I, what I want you to see in this story is Jesus denounces a people not because of something that she did, but because of something she didn't do. Not because of acts of commission, but because of acts omitted. Gang, the, the lesson, or at least the first lesson that I pointed to, is a constant theme, particularly in the New Testament. And the lesson is this. Fruit is the legitimate expectation by God for His people. Fruit is the legitimate expectation by God for His people. And I want you to see just one other place where it's, um, where it's mentioned. It's mentioned all throughout the New Testament. We can spend the rest of the afternoon. We won't. We don't have time. But I want you to see this one. It's a classic text. It's found in Matthew 7. If you've got your Bibles in your laps, open to Matthew chapter 7. And, and let me read that. The same truth. But again, it's a, it's a part of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's some of the closing verses by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm in Matthew chapter 7. And again, the principle is fruit is the legitimate expectation by God for his people. Read with me. I'll begin reading it. I mean, you don't have to read out loud. Just follow with me. Let me read. Uh, Verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Ladies and gentlemen, what I just read to you is just Jesus is outlining a principle that he fleshes out in Mark chapter 11. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. Well, he ran into one over here in Mark 11. <laughs> And it didn't bear any fruit, so what does he do? He cuts it down. Actually, he didn't cut it down, he uprooted it. Because, ladies and gentlemen, fruit, fruitfulness, is the legitimate expectation by God for his people. Now, now let me add this little twist. Guys, fruit is not invisible, is it? Fruit is, is objective, visible, quantifiable stuff. Now, the legitimate expectation by God for His people is visible, objective, quantifiable fruit. And when that is not present, Then 
When that is not present, ladies and gentlemen, it is adequate proof that there is no life, no reality. And in this story, when that life and reality is not there, Jesus curses it. That's because, ladies and gentlemen, that God can and does legitimately expect fruit. And when that fruit is not present, hear me well, I didn't say, oh, you went out and robbed a bank. That's not what is in view here. It's not an issue of what one did. It was an, it's the issue of what one didn't do. When that is not present, when that which is the evidence of genuine real life is not present, it is uprooted, cut down. Now, of course, as I said, Jesus is talking about Israel here. But you and I are going to have to make an application, aren't we? When you try to apply this thing to, um, to us as individuals, the application is going to have to go something like this. We're going to have to make sure that we're not all leaf. Or I could, I could say it a little bit differently. I could say... Is there any fruit? Gang, um, I can say it like this. Christianity is not a matter of simply avoiding certain behaviors. I don't chew. I don't smoke. And I, I, I know you'll be glad to know that my wife didn't, nor does she now. But ladies and gentlemen, Christianity is not to be identified with certain behaviors that we don't do, that we avoid. In this instance, the issue is not what I didn't do, but the focus is placed on what I do do. Any, any uh, fruit, evident, obvious, visible, objective, quantifiable in me? Oh, sure, Jimmy. Well, <laughs> well of course. I, I just this past week, I, uh, I prayed for a parking place. Well, that might be. That might be nothing but leaf. Oh, but Jimmy, <laughs> I threw a couple of bucks into the uh, Salvation Army kettle over Christmas time. <laughs> might be nothing more than leaf. Oh, but Jimmy, <laughs> I, I, I go to church regularly. Good. But it might be nothing but leaf. Oh, but now, Jimmy, wait just a minute. Right on my truck, right out here in this parking lot, is a bumper sticker that says, Honk if you love Jesus. It might be leaf. Nothing but leaf. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I hope you do pray for parking places, etc. Those are good things. But if there is no fruit, they're nothing but leaf. Useless. 
In fact, they're downright deceptive. They deceive you and they deceive me. Gang, as Jesus picks through the leaves of my life, can he find the fruit that he has a right to expect in me? The test of reality in anyone's relationship to God is not leaf. It's fruit. The test of reality is not form. It's fruit. And you and I, being raised in the buckle of the Bible belt, we, we have certain religious formulations that we favor, or we have certain uh, uh, religious ideas or doctrines or truths that we've intellectualized. But where's the fruit? Where is the fruit of character in us? Is all we have leaf? Looking good. Looking good will never cover up barrenness, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this is a dreadful commentary in verse 13, he walks up to the tree and we're told he found nothing but leaves. And that was descriptive of Israel. The thing I want to know is, is it descriptive of me? Now, if you haven't dozed off just yet and you're still with me, hang in there because some of you may be asking, what fruit does Jesus have in mind? Uh, what exactly does he want to find in us as he picks through the leaves? Well, he answers that question in verse 22. Um, as the story continues, Peter is so overcome by the fact that the tree has been uprooted and is dead, and, and he points the tree, he points Jesus to the tree. And notice how Jesus responds. Have faith in God. And, and gang, um, don't miss this. Um, the, the issue is here is not how many mountains have you moved lately. The issue is, are you properly related? Are you trusting in this God, in trusting wholeheartedly in this God who creates those mountains and moves one from time to time? Folks, faith is the response to God's love shown us in Christ Jesus. Not some kind of religious doodad. Gang, faith doesn't take us into God's presence so that we can boast over how well we've done and how beautiful are our leaves. Faith is the stuff that lays hold of the only one who can forgive us. Faith is the stuff that reaches out with the hand of a beggar and lays hold of a, of a gift of a king. You know, gang, when the Holy Spirit finally gives me eyes to see who, I, who he is and what he's like, what it does is allow me to see what I am and what I am like. And then the only possible and legitimate response to that 
is putting my whole hope, my, all of my faith in this God. Faith, ladies and gentlemen, once exercised, then becomes the fountain out of which flows all kinds of lovely fruit. Gang, religious exercises are just that. They're religious exercises. They're leaf. And, and I, I'm afraid that so much of what the world identifies as Christianity is nothing but leaf. They, um, they describe us as if we're people who don't enjoy dancing or something. They describe the Christian movement as some kind of political sect that goes to the same church on Sunday mornings. That's, that's leaf, ladies and gentlemen. And all that stuff may appear or, or, or make us appear to be a certain something. When in fact we're not that certain something. But the fruit bearing that Jesus looks for is something that inevitably follows on the heels of somebody who does exactly what Jesus tells them to do in verse 22. Lay hold of this God. Don't let him go. Forget all your uh, confirmation class and the fact that you were baptized at age eight. Lay hold of this God. And then what follows when we do is something that is the legitimate expectation by God for his people. Fruit. One other little quick note in the, in the text, and then we're finished. You'll notice in verse 24 that Jesus appears rather abruptly to leap to the topic of prayer. But the, the more I, I, I thought about that this week, it really isn't such a leap after all. Prayer, ladies and gentlemen, is an expression of faith. Prayer is the stuff that sustains faith. Prayer is, is, a, is a visible piece of fruit of faith. I want to show you something. I don't know whether you can find this real quickly. I can tell you the story or you can find it yourself. It's in Acts chapter 9. But you remember the story when Saul, the guy who held the coats while they stoned Stephen and they, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians and, and of course he ultimately became Paul and wrote you know, a goodly portion of the New Testament and all that business. Well, Saul, as he's on his way to um, uh, Damascus to persecute the Christians, is struck down by this blinding light. You remember the story? It's told in Acts 9. And so he kind of limps into Damascus, and, and they plonk him down in some kind of um, hotel or something. And then God goes to one of his people, one of his children, and his name is Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to find out this guy. Go to the, the, the street called Straight. There's a guy over there that I want you to help, uh, you know, I want you to tell him uh, what's up, you know. And Ananias said, um, well, you know, Lord, I can't do that because, uh, because, you know, he's been persecuting the church. Don't you realize that? And finally God talks him into it and Ananias does what he's told to do. But here's what I want you to see. It's in verse 11. So the Lord said to him, this is God speaking to Ananias. Ananias, arise and go to the street called Straight. 
and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is witnessing. For behold, he is studying his Bible. For behold, he is preaching. Now, look, I want you to go find this Saul of Tarsus. And here's how you'll know that you found the right guy. Behold, he's praying. You know, folks, um, there's a lot about prayer that I don't understand. You know, how does, how does my prayer affect, how does it change things? That, that, you know, there's a lot that I don't understand. But this much I do understand about prayer. Prayer is that discipline, ladies and gentlemen, that moves me, that brings me back again and again to the center of my life, the Lord God himself. Prayer is that activity that refocuses and recenters me because I am so tempted to be off-center. And prayer is the stuff that brings me back to that central focus of my existence. And gang, I want you to know, though I don't understand a whole lot about it, I can tell you this. I know that within my breast there is this constant desire. I better talk to him. When I became a Christian, ladies and gentlemen, I understood that there was something ultimately divine that I had to stay in and the more I'm in touch with him, the better off life works. And the less I'm in touch with him, the more life disengages underneath me. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, one of the pieces of fruit that springs from a heart of faith is a determination to pray and pray and pray and keep on praying even though there's lots about it. I don't understand. So I can say to you, my dear friend, there's one criterion. Is there at the base of your soul this recognition that I'm not in charge, that I'm not the captain of my own soul, and that I'm not that smart, I'm not that cute, I'm not that savvy. What I need is to know this God more and more and more. Here's the lesson of the text, ladies and gentlemen, I think. All that God does in our lives is designed for us to be, is, is designed such that we will bear fruit. The challenge of the text is, if I don't have any fruit, I'm going to be uprooted. You know, my friend, you, you may have existed for a long time as a certain church-going, Sunday school-teaching kind of dude, and all of your life wondered, why hasn't my, relation, why hasn't my religion changed anymore? Why hasn't it ever become as vital and as real as I, as I read that it is to some people? Well, here's your answer. What you may have is nothing but leaf. Because the real thing produces 
that which God expects from all of us. Fruit. Father, I do ask that you will allow us to examine our hearts and souls in the light of this event in the life of our Savior. It is, um, it is our privilege, O oh God, to examine your word all over again because, Father, none of us want to grow hard and indifferent to these things. None of us wants to grow callous. None of us want to be duped. None of us want to be deceived by our own leafy barrenness. So, Father, as we get the mental picture about Jesus stepping up to each one of us and fingering through the leaves, oh, God, might he be able to find fresh, growing, visible, quantifiable, healthy fruit. It is our desire to meet the heavenly expectations of the God who made us and redeemed us in Christ Jesus. We commit ourselves to that, Father, all over again, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.